Good evening, Thursologists. Welcome. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the time to hear from your word. Be with us now. Change our hearts, our minds, and our lives. We love you. Amen. In this series on the end times, we're laying the foundations of what we need to know to be able to rightly interpret the scriptures that relate to the last days. So two weeks ago, we established, and here's your notes already, uh, a pervasive prophetic principle. Again, t- uh, tonight, because these are all linked together, these, um, these, um, this mini-series, uh, just a brief review, uh, a pervasive prophetic principle, here are your blanks, the key to understanding the future of the world is understanding the future of Israel. Last week, we dealt with six key biblical facts about the nation of Israel, and the final fact was one that has been missed by most people who study eschatology. Fact number six, Israel fact number six, here it was. Uh, In the end, here's your blanks, in the end, God will save the whole nation of Israel. So we went through many passages that say exactly this, and then we looked uh, most, the most remarkable text in the section of Scripture that's called the Codex in Romans 9 through 11. And look at this. Um, the, I have it in your notes there for ease for you. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. And oh, it is a mystery. Look at this. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so... All Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. But how is this possible? How how can they all be saved? Is God, as I said last week, is God just going to say, poof, you're saved? Of course not. In fact, this won't happen until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in, as we've seen, at the end of the seven years. Um, at the end of the tribulation, at the end of what Jeremiah calls Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress, Jeremiah 30. And so, we've now seen for uh, several weeks, this is Daniel's 70th group of seven years. We think of it as the tribulation. And during the first three and a half years, Israel will have been somehow surrounded. Uh, we'll talk about the wars, the battles that come against them at the ends of times. And, and the Antichrist comes in and says, no, 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 let's have a peace treaty. And the uh, Antichrist will be thought to be the Christ, will save them from the nations surrounding them. And for three and a half years, they'll be in a, a covenant that allows them to, uh, to do the daily sacrifice in the temple and that type of thing. And they'll think, oh my goodness, our Savior has come, the Christ has come. And at the midpoint, then of course, the abomination of desolation, uh, Antichrist changes everything, uh, is exposed now as the false god that he is, uh, demands worship uh, from everyone, stops the daily sacrifice, and for three and a half years tries to wipe out every follower of Jesus and every Jewish person on the planet. Um, And... What we found last week, amazingly, was during this horrendous time where Israel will be battered and battered and chased down, the Holocaust of Holocaust, this horrendous time for the Jewish people, at the end, they will have been uh, so beaten and so um, 
so chased down and so purged by fire and tribulation and persecution, they will then, amazingly enough, at Jesus' return, they will realize what has happened and that Jesus is their Savior. In fact, um, after all of this persecution and calamity, Zechariah taught what will happen to the surviving remnant when Christ comes to save all Israel. And let's look at that passage, right? The, it's in your, I think I put this in your, blanks, in your notes also. It shows what will happen to the Jews who have survived the tribulation and are alive when Christ returns. The final world war will be in full swing. And when Jesus will show up, Jesus will show up and he will go and annihilate the nations that have come to annihilate Israel. And look at the, look at the passage here. And in that day... I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit, notice capitalized, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. So we saw that at the very end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes in power and great glory to destroy the nations that surround Israel, the surviving Jewish people will see the, uh, the exalted Christ, and God will pour out the Holy Spirit on them, and they will look on him whom they pierced, and they will say, basically, I cannot believe we killed our own Messiah. And in this moment of truth, they will mourn and repent, and Jesus will save every one of them in the remnant. So how will all Israel be saved? Here were the two key concepts that we worked on last week. Number one, here's your blank. Israel will be saved the only way anyone is saved, right? Through repentance. Israel will be saved the only way that anyone is saved, through repentance and through trusting in the shed blood of the Savior who was pierced for our transgressions. Those who are left at the end with many, many millions that have been slaughtered tragically or who have accepted the mark of the beast and followed after the Antichrist instead of the true Christ, they will repent and be saved through the Holy Spirit's wooing that happens at the end. And then key concept number two, ready by the end of the tribulation, finally there will be a refined remnant. The remnant which has found itself all through the biblical text from the very beginning, this incredible doctrine of the remnant. There will be a refined remnant of God's people and they will all accept their Messiah when he returns. Uh, this explained, is explained perfectly in Zechariah chapter 13. Look at the text there. I will come, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish. But the third part will be left. This is the remnant, right? And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Then they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, this is very unusual, right? Many times you've heard the, the promise that Israel will say, the Lord is our God, right? As a, as a people, as a nation. But notice their response. The Lord is my God. Every one of them seeing the exalted Christ, returning to save them, to save the nation, to win the battle of Armageddon. They look on whom, whom, him whom they've pierced. They mourn and they repent and they accept their Messiah and say, the Lord is my God. 
So at the very end, when only the remnant is left on the earth, just as Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Hebrews, the Pauline epistles prophesied, God will save all Israel. God will fulfill his promise of the ages when every Jew left on the earth finally repents and accepts Jesus as their Savior. What an amazing God. No matter how long people run from him, he always has a plan to save them. He never gives up. He's absolutely relentless. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he was relentless for you? And aren't you glad for those around you who, who are struggling or are running from God or don't know him yet? He's absolutely relentless. So in the last two weeks, we've dealt with the pivotal role that Israel plays in understanding what scripture teaches about the end times. And tonight, as we continue this mini-series on understanding how national Israel fits in the last days, we come to an obvious and key question, right? It's, it's an obvious question to ask, and it's a key question. Ready? Here's your blank. This is what we'll work on tonight. Is God really impartial? It's an obvious question. Is God really impartial? Let's start by looking at a passage that answers this question directly. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10. And we pick up here in Acts where Peter has had a strange vision and is commanded to eat animals that were considered unclean by the law. So three times, three times Peter protested and three times Peter hears a voice from heaven say, what God has made clean, do not consider unholy. Three times, Lord, I can't eat this. Your law says this, and the Lord says, what God has made clean, do not consider unholy. And simultaneously, there's a Roman centurion who believes in God, and he's been visited by an angel who's told him to send messengers to Peter to request him to come to his home in Caesarea. You may know this text very well, or at least the story. And look with me in Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 21, where we pick up this story now. Verse 21, and Peter went down to the men and said, they've now showed up because the centurion sent, this, sent them to him to, to tell Peter to come. He says, behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason which, I am, uh, which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Verse 23, and so he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he arose and went with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. Go down with me now to verse 34, almost the next paragraph. Ready? And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show impartiality, excuse me, show partiality, right? The light goes on of this amazing vision he's had where he's saying, no, don't call unholy the things which I have made clean, clearly setting him up for this incredible interaction. In verse 35, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Verse 44, the last paragraph, look at this. While Peter was still speaking these words, he preached some 
you know, basically preaches a quick mini message. While he's preaching these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, so here are the Jewish believers who still aren't sure how, how the Gentile thing is going to work out, right? Do they have to become Jewish to follow Jesus? All of those things are going on. Notice all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. So this passage gives us key concept number one. Ready? Number one, God is absolutely impartial in his offer of redemption and his willingness to pour out his Holy Spirit on every single person. Absolutely impartial, offered to every single person. This is a pervasive biblical concept. For example, it's stated clearly by the Apostle Peter again in a profound statement in 2 Peter 3.9, and it gives us key concept number two, and here the key concept literally is a verse. Ready? Write it in. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any, there's your blank, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God is absolutely impartial in his offering of saving grace to the whole world, regardless of where people are from, who they are, what race they're from, who their parents are, regardless of any of that. But this truth seems to create a logical conflict with the explicit biblical doctrine of Israel's election, of Israel being chosen. Which is it? Is he impartial? Or was Israel a chosen people? Is there an elect people? How can God's impartiality be reconciled with the idea of a chosen people? And this creates a big theological tension. Ready? Here's your blank. I'll read it twice. A big theological tension. If God is impartial, then choosing a special people seems inherently contradictory. If God is impartial, then choosing a special people seems inherently contradictory. So we're going to look at three keys to reconciling the apparent contradiction. God impartial, God choosing a people, doesn't seem to fit. Contradiction, so reconciling these, key number one, here's your blanks. Don't confuse a special purpose with personal salvation. Don't confuse a special purpose. You could even put a special calling with personal salvation. You see, God's choice of Israel as a nation for his great purposes has nothing to do with being partial to any individual with regard to his offer of saving grace. Think about it. There were many who were not of the Hebrew people who came to Christ. Rahab, the, the, um, Ruth was a Moabite. These people who were not a part of the elect who came nonetheless to have true faith, saving faith in God. And there were many, just look at the, after the Exodus, right? And going into the land, there were many who, because of their unbelief, despite being elect, rejected God and died in their unbelief. So don't get these two things confused. At some point in the future, we'll deal extensively with the biblical doctrine of prevenient grace. It's the grace that God uses to draw unbelievers to himself even before they come to believe. 
and he pours that drawing, that wooing of the Holy Spirit, that grace that comes before on all people, as we've just read from the text. All people, regardless of where they come from, Jew or non-Jew, elect or non-elect. The purpose of the elect, we'll see in a minute, is not a one-to-one match with personal salvation. But now, for now, suffice it to say that it, it, in matters of personal salvation, God is perfectly fair, perfectly just, and perfectly impartial. This is why Paul could say, in Christ, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, right? It's not about your genetics. All are offered the grace to be saved. So to understand key number one, you need to understand that God choosing Israel was for a special purpose. It was for a special purpose. Don't confuse a special purpose with personal salvation. And that purpose was to join God in a covenant to help him save his world. But be very clear, being chosen, being elected for a special purpose does not ensure personal salvation. And this gives us a key concept. Ready? Here's your blanks. Write it in. Being chosen does not give people a special position. This is really important. Being chosen does not give people a special position. It gives them a special responsibility. And this concept isn't just about Israel. It's also a message to the church today. The reason God chose us If we are following him, if we are followers of Christ, the reason God chose us is so that we will join him in his purpose of saving the world. That's why he chooses a special people, is to save the whole world. This has always been the reason God has ever chosen anyone. So there's, here's the biblical understanding of election, of chosenness. God chooses a remnant of a family, or a remnant of a neighborhood, or a community, or a remnant of a nation, or a nation, and he saves them. Think about it. This is exactly what he did when he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And then he has a great purpose for these chosen people. The elect are there to provide a beachhead of salvation that God can now mobilize to bring about the salvation of everyone else. Remember very clearly to Abraham, 550 years, 450 years before Moses and the Exodus and taking them out of uh, of Egypt. What did God say? The reason I bless, the reason I save you, Abraham, and your family, Abraham, is so that you may bless, you may help save all the families of the earth. So this is a profound theological precept. Here it is in your blanks. The purpose of election is to save, you ready for this? This is amazing. The purpose of election is to save the rest of the world. The purpose of election is to a responsibility, not to a position, to a responsibility. Many Jewish people rejected their position by unbelief and disobedience and idolatry. So the purpose of election is to save the rest of the world. But the problem, starting all the way back with Israel, is that chosen people inevitably, listen church, chosen people inevitably start thinking that they're, you ready? That they're special. 
It's inevitable. We inevitably start thinking that we're chosen because of something about us. And now, get ready to laugh at us. This is an amazing irony. It's key number two. Here's your blanks. God chose Israel because, ready? God chose Israel because of their unworthiness and unattractiveness. God chose Israel because of their unworthiness and unattractiveness. People who are chosen by God, the God of the Bible, should be very humble. It should be very humble. Why? Because God made it explicitly clear that it wasn't partiality that caused him to choose Israel. And it certainly wasn't based upon their merit. He didn't choose them because they were more appealing or because he was partial to them. When he chose Israel, he had his eyes on the whole world. Literally, Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, all the families of the world were on God's mind when he chose a special family to help him save the world. So, on the contrary, God repeatedly states that Israel was a bunch of rebels and they deserved nothing but judgment. Turn with me to Isaiah. So it's easy to find because it's a couple of books, three books, I think, to the right of, of, um, of uh, the Psalms, which is in the middle, but it's also because it's so big, it's easy to find. Look at chapter 30, uh, chapter 30 with me uh, of, uh, of Isaiah, chapter 30, and um, look at verse 8. L listen to what God's saying about these special people, these chosen people, these elect people. Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go write it on a tablet before them. God's telling Isaiah to go write. And inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons who refuse to listen. He's talking about Israel, the elect, the chosen. To the instruction of the Lord who say... And refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, right? Ready? The prophets. Who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And say to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Are you ready for this? How relevant is this prophecy for today in the church? Speak to us pleasant words. I love this. Prophesy illusions. In other words, tickle our ears. And now listen to this. They say, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So here is the elect people saying, don't tell us the truth, Isaiah, tickle our ears, prophesy illusions, don't talk to us about the Holy One of Israel. Oh, that many in the church would hear that today. And look again with me. In Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah 65, look at the first verse. <clears throat> I, perfitted, per, I permitted myself, God speaking, I pervid, permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me 
to my face. He's talking about the elect. He's saying, you're not called to a special people, as a special people to think you're special. You're called to a great responsibility to help me save my world. But you won't listen and follow me and obey me and be used by me. You want to be your own God and have your own gods. Key number three. Ready? Key number three. By the way, if you've been saved, don't ever hallucinate that you can take any credit. As Jesus said, he chose us. We didn't choose him. Israel was not meritorious for their calling. God simply said, you're the people. And we'll see that uh, soon here in the Deuteronomy text. Key number three, God's choosing of the Jews is not about the Jews. It's about who God is. God's choosing of the Jews is not about the Jews. It's about who God is. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, that great text in the fifth book of the Bible, the last of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Turn there with me and look as uh, the chapter begins. Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7, here you go. When the Lord, verse 1, when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land, speaking now of after out of Egypt, going into the land, you are to enter it to possess it, and possess it. And I shall clear away many nations before you. So in this passage, the Lord goes on to tell them how he's going to defeat their enemies so that they can move into the land of promise. And then the Lord goes on to say something remarkable to them. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, the beginning of the next paragraph. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of, ready, all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Whoa. Think about that. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the problem. We're chosen. God chose us out of everybody else. But now comes a real stunner. Now comes why he chose them and why he didn't choose them. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But the Lord... Because the Lord loved you and kept an oath which he swore to your forefathers. One of the most mystifying of all biblical truths is that God chose an undeserving people. But he did this with a very specific purpose in mind. He did it to demonstrate his love, his grace, and his mercy to the world. That's what calling Israel is about. God's incredible mercy and desire to save everyone, not something special about the chosen people. The chosen people aren't the winners of a contest. God didn't scour the earth to find a group of really good people to call his own. His choosing of the Jews isn't a sign that there's a group of people who deserve God's love, who deserve God's grace. On the contrary, it's an eternal statement of who our God is. But if this is the case, why was this so important for God to choose a special people? Why? Because humans 
would never figure out what God is really like unless he gave us a huge object lesson that we see around us among people. So let me explain. We live in a dog-eat-dog world, and the big dog always wins. We live in a world where the rich, the privileged, the wealthy, the beautiful, the famous, and the powerful are the ones who get all the breaks. And so, if God was going to come up with a salvation plan that made sense to the world, he'd choose the rich and the famous to be his poster children for choosing, for saving. But what do we find? Our God did exactly the opposite of that. It's a true mystery. God chose the outcasts, the unworthy, the unattractive, the undeserving, what the Apostle Paul called us. God chose the scum of the earth to be his people. And now I'd like to point out another issue that's so second nature to us in America that we nearly miss it completely. This is an instance where we're just like the fish who doesn't know he's wet because he's just totally immersed in water. He doesn't realize he's wet. We're so completely immersed in this historical reality in our society that we don't see it. In America, despite ourselves, our culture has been profoundly impacted by the biblical view of God. And this has enormous sociological and ethical influence on us. Let me give you just one example. Listen to this. If you go to many Hindu cultures, not all, but many Hindu cultures, you'll find an abject poverty next to extravagant luxury, opulence, and wealth. And the thing that's inconceivable is that the wealthy haven't the slightest hint of guilt for ignoring the squalor that they can see over their fence. But even more striking than this is the religious response to this lack of concern for the poor. They're taught by many in their religious, of their religious leaders that they should not help the poor and needy. And you're thinking, what? Really? The reason they teach this is because this would disrupt the karmic cycles. You may be familiar with the concept of reincarnation. Hinduism is a classic religion that teaches that we've all been continuously reincarnated from eternity past. And in each new instance, we produce either good karma or bad karma. And thus, if someone is impoverished, they're just getting what they deserve from a past life. So to the karmic religions, the philosophical system actually teaches that the poor and the outcasts are getting exactly what they should. They're getting what they deserve. They're getting what karma demands. And no one should intervene in that karmic process. Otherwise, they throw it out of balance. They're paying for their past sins. Now, compare this to our culture. Despite our materialism and greed and our relentless chasing of wealth, because of the powerful influence of biblical thought in our history, even if the wealthy people choose not to help the poor, guess what? In our society, they still know they should. Think of that. Despite all of the secularization and pluralization in America, the wealthy, even if they don't help the poor, they know they should help the poor. This was illustrated dramatically right after the 2009 earthquake in Haiti. 
There was a massive superstar telethon that raised millions, I believe tens of millions of dollars for the relief effort. And there was a huge clamor of the biggest and richest stars in the world to be on that show. Now, I don't doubt that some of them were doing it for good reasons, but some of them were also doing it as a self-serving thing, I'm sure. They didn't, they didn't want to be left out since all the big names were included. But what's amazing is they all knew that they should help. Now, this is truly ironic. You probably know this. A whole bunch of those stars believe in reincarnation and karma. <laughs> and there they were messing up the karmic balance by helping to take care of the poor and the devastated and the marginalized. But why? Why would that happen? Why would that philosophy be there? Because unknowingly, they've been deeply impacted by a decision that the God of the universe made three and a half millennia ago. His decision to choose the tiny, undeserving, impoverished, enslaved, outcast nation of Israel to be his special people. The last people on earth that he should have chosen. Nobody, who makes that connection nowadays? But there it is. In our country, God has used the historical impact of the scripture to keep alive the concept that the power sh powerful should help the powerless. The insiders should help the outsiders. That the wealthy should help the poor. And those with influence should help the marginalized. And listen, church, don't forget that. Be biblical. Do not react against political ideologies and have a reactive theology. Be driven by scripture, which always says, if you have any power, it is for the purpose of helping those without power. So why in the world would movie stars choose to help the tiny, desolate, devastated, impoverished Haitians? <laughs> now stop and think for a minute. If the Hindu gods had come along to choose a special people during the time of Moses, who would they have chosen? Really straightforward. The Egyptians. Those gods would have chosen the Egyptians because they were rich and they were powerful. They were the rulers of the world. Clearly, they had been good in their last lives. And that's why they got to be in charge of the world now. That's who the karmic believers would have chosen. Never would they have thought of Israel, the slaves. And yet, in our culture, the rich and famous have telethons. So, do you know why American superstars give a hoot about Haitians? Because they're made in the image of God, and the God who created them chose the Jews instead of the Egyptians. So, here's application number one. Here's your blanks. Be very careful before you got, ask, ask God to link chosenness to worthiness. Listen, church, be very careful before you ask God to link chosenness to worthiness. Despite all of Israel's wickedness and rebellion, I want us to see what God is going to do for the Jewish nation in the last days. As we begin this passage in Ezekiel, you can turn there now, as we begin this passage in Ezekiel, God is telling once again of Israel's repeated rebellion and idolatry. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Look at this with me. Amazing. 
God just laying on them about their idolatry and their rebellion. Verse 19 in Ezekiel chapter 36. Here we go. And I also scattered them among the nations, talking of Israel, of course, and they were dispersed throughout all the lands according to their ways and their deeds. I judged them when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name. So not only had they profaned God's name and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, when they were scattered all over the world, notice they profaned my name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. Notice. Guess what happens when God's people are wicked and God has to judge us? Then the world looks on God's people and says, their God can't deliver them. Guess what? Sin and hypocrisy in the life of believers brings non-believers to blaspheme our God. Verse 21, but I, God speaking, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. This is an unbelievably deep passage. Look, passage, look at this, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands, 1948. And I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you you from all your filthiness, from all your idols, when? At the second coming, when the remnant, now purified, will look on Jesus and mourn and repent and be saved by his blood. Uh, then I will sprinkle the clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Therefore, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Why? To say, be saved by being holy? No, because a saved people following God and being holy, the world looks on from the outside and sees the blessings of that covenant, and they say, I want their God. That's why he says he wants them obeying the law, and so people will come to him because he blesses the people who have become his and been saved by his grace. In verse 28, And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Is our God amazing? Now, in the last few weeks, I've talked about replacement theology. It's been around the church for a long time. The concept is that God has forgotten Israel, and rejected them from being his people because they broke covenant with him and they no longer deserve his promises. So I'd like to give a brief airing to the argument of the replacement theologians that the church has replaced Israel and it, and it received all of its promises. And here's how I'm going to do this. Let's play out the assumptions of those who say that the Jews are undeserving of being chosen, that they've been forgotten by God, and that they've forfeited the promises that God made to them. 
Repl replacement theology assumption number one, here's your blanks. Israel doesn't deserve for God to fulfill his promises to them. Israel doesn't deserve for God to fulfill his promises to them. So is their assumption right? Yes. Their first assumption is correct. And now let's look at replacement theology assumption number two. God has replaced Israel with the church. Ready? Assumption number two. God has replaced Israel with the church because Israel no longer deserves his promises. The replacement theologians would say that the church is now cho a chosen people because we follow God and have been faithful to the new covenant. Well, in response to this, I'd like us to read just two passages. We could look at many. Start with 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians is uh, about a halfway into the New Testament, right? After Acts, Romans comes uh, 1 Corinthians. And look here as Paul is writing to the church, right, who supposedly now has, has replaced Israel if the replacement theologians are right. Look at this. Verse 1 in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as, to, as men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Even Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men, as opposed to transformed children of God? And now Galatians chapter 3. The first few verses of Galatians chapter 3. Listen to this. To this chosen church, right? Look at this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Oh my, there's a user-friendly preacher. You foolish Galatians who bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or... By hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Here's the Galatian church, a pretty decent church, but here they are, abandoning the true gospel, the justification by faith, and returning to the law, the old way of, I've got to be morally upright in order to be acceptable to God, rather than becoming transformed and righteous because we have been saved, and it's an incredible response of love and mercy that happens to the spirit-filled believer. So the Corinthian church blew it, and the Galatian church blew it. Let me ask you, what about your church? We have listeners now, I think, all over the country. <laughs> what about your church? What about the American church? Do you suppose that in the churches that we attend, there might have been a time when Paul could have written a letter and said, you foolish, and fill in the blank of the name of your church? You foolish, just like he said, you foolish Galatians. So these passages about the confusion and the errors and the sins of the early churches reveal that only blindness and arrogance would ever lead us to believe that the reason God will fulfill his promises to us 
is because he finally found a deserving people. Oh God, help us from that arrogance. And this leads to a troubling question to be asked of replacement theology. Write it in. Here's your blanks. Do we really want God to only keep his promises? Do we really want God to only keep his promises to those who deserve them? Guess what? There never has been and there never will be a people who deserve to be chosen, who deserve to be blessed, who deserve to be saved, who deserve God's grace, who deserve God's love. Chosenness is all about who God is in his mercy, not about who we are and who we become by our acts and works of the flesh, no matter how righteous they are. Application number two. Here's your blanks. If God's irrevocable promises are revocable, think about this. If God's irrevocable promises are revocable, we're in big trouble. One of the things that fascinates me about replacement theology is that those who believe that God's promises to Israel are no longer in force don't seem to have a clue about the implication of their theology. Think about it this way. God's promise to save Israel was stated repeatedly in the word as an irrevocable promise. In the end, I will save all Israel. In the last three weeks, we've seen passage after passage where God made this promise very clear to his chosen people, the Hebrews. So think about this. It's a key concept. Here's your blanks. Write it in. Whether God will keep his promises to the Jews is, an incredibly, impo is incredibly important to non-Jews. Whether God will keep his promises to the Jews is incredibly important to non-Jews. Jews. So does Yahweh violate his promises? Can he be unfaithful? Absolutely not. And so no one, not undeserving Israel and not even undeserving us, can make God forget a promise. God's word stands forever. His covenants remain. His faithfulness is sure. And this leads us to the most fundamental of all reasons why God will keep his promises to Israel. Why? Because our God is a God of promise. The fundamental reason he will keep his promises to Israel is because our God is a God of promise. So let me ask a question. What would it mean if God revoked an irrevocable promise? What would it mean if God revoked an irrevocable promise? Well, let me answer this question by reading some of God's promises to us. Just listen to them. I've given you the text, but just listen to them. Don't try to chase them down. Just listen to these promises. And we know, and we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God, who, those who are called according to his purpose. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone, if anyone, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Surely, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now notice, you have to meet the definition of a sheep, which means that you follow. But look what, if you do meet the definition of a sheep, which means you follow him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I will give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail or forsake you, nor fear or be dismayed. Some of you who are watching tonight, there may be catastrophe or calamity going on in your life. Listen to the word of the Lord. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Do you know what the setting is of Jeremiah doing, saying that in verse chapter 29? Right before it, he says, you're going to be exiled for 70 years in Babylon. 70 years. Think of it. Even the 70-year exile into Babylon was for the purpose of salvation. It would purge the Jews, they would be refined so that they could come back and know the Lord. Think of it, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you, a promise. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And you ready? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let me ask, are we counting on God to keep these promises to us? But if God is the kind of God who will revoke his irrevocable promises to Israel then how can we be sure that he'll keep his promises to us? And this leads us to a key concept. Here's your blank. If God is a God of unmovable reliability, if God is a God of unmovable reliability, and he even keeps his promises to undeserving Israel, then he can be counted on to keep his promises to undeserving us undeserving us. This isn't, folks, just an important concept. This isn't just key theology. You realize that this is our very salvation, that God will keep his promises. So as we finish this evening, I'd like us to read one of the greatest promises in the Bible. I believe I have this in your notes. Just let this soak in as an astounding promise from the Lord our God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? For who will bring a charge against the, God's elect? 
God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Oh, do we want Jesus praying for us tonight? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I leave us with a question. Do we want God to keep his promises to Israel? You bet we do. And fortunately for us, the God who will keep his promises for the nation of Israel, who is undeserving, will keep his promises to undeserving us. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for our arrogance, thinking somehow we're this special people that fortunately somehow we showed up and now God can use us Oh God, help us to remember that we were just slaves in our sin, just like Israel was in Egypt. We were just slaves in our sin, and you came and you saved us. But oh God, may that salvation, that realizing that I'm one of God's elect, I'm part of the church, I'm part of his um, incredible salvation plan, may it sink in, oh God, that what that means is, I haven't been called to a special position. I haven't been called to, to, to special perks. No, I've been called to a special responsibility. I've been called to help you save all those who are not yet in your kingdom. And may we have a passion, a passion, Lord, to take your love and your mercy and you're loving to use anyone in power who will use their power for the powerless and the outcast and all of those who are in great need, Lord, that, that you don't choose the powerful and the rich and the famous for your purposes. You choose people like us. And Lord, give a burning, burning spirit inside of us so that we will help you save your world. We love you, O oh God. Amen.